Good morning. We are in Genesis 4, the war between us. And I think a better, after listening to Be Still My Soul, a better title would have been The, the Lord is For Us. But you can see where we're going with the sermon. For time's sake, I'm only going to read verses 1 through 16, but uh, as you can see, as promised, we will start picking up the pace in Genesis, at least in Genesis 4. Um, We'll start in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Then she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious. He looked despondent. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I do not know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper, guardian? Then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the soul, I must hide myself from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Heavenly Father, and God, we... As we open up in Genesis 4, we see that the, the way that you intended things, Lord, have uh, taken a, a turn of destruction from Adam and Eve and now their sons, Lord. And even, even at the root of it, what, what we saw in Genesis 3, the root of all of the destruction, the brutality, the sin, the, everything that takes place, it, it, it's because of sin. Sin desires us. 
And if we're honest with ourselves, sin has, has already taken every single one of us. But the one who it didn't take, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, has died on the cross for our sins so that they may be forgiven and rose from the dead so that we may receive life, his reward, and be free from the power of sin that mastered over us before you gave us life in Christ, Lord. i got to ask for your understanding of the text today, Lord, and that you would call your people to respond. Transform us more into the image of Christ, Lord. And only you are capable of doing that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Beginning here in Genesis 4, we see that the prophetic word of God from Genesis 3.15 unfold. If you remember a few weeks ago, we, saw, we read in Genesis 3.15, God told the serpent, I will put hostility, enmity between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. And with the birth of Cain and Abel, that enmity begins. And while the two boys are born from the same woman, they are separated by the two offsprings that God spoke of. One is the seed of the serpent, and the other is the seed of the woman. I don't think it's very hard to tell which is which, or who is which. Not only is Cain barbaric towards his brother, but, but if you continue to read on in Genesis 4, you see that the descendants of Cain are people who are brutally violent as well. And that, that much is clear from Lamech, who comes from the lineage of Cain. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zalah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain has avenged seven times, then Lamech... 77 times. He's boasting about his brutality and violence. Now, if that's not convincing enough that Cain is a seed of the serpent, then you can turn to 1 John 3, starting in verse 10. John writes, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. That's who we have in Abel. A man whose heart is toward the Lord. You see that in his works and his offering toward the Lord. And that's where the hostility begins. This enmity that God spoke about because Cain's jealousy toward his brother's love for God Right? is what ignites the anger within him. It's what makes him furious. God is pleased with Abel. God is not pleased with Cain. And eventually, it leads to him striking his brother down. 
the, the enmity, though, between the offsprings, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with this story. This hostility, this war continues, and it's continued throughout human history, and it will continue until Jesus returns. The enemies of God will seek to destroy the people of God. We, we see that happening all over the world in regard to persecution and martyrdom of Christians. It's a reality that we may face one day ourselves. It shouldn't come as a surprise. Our Lord told us that the world would hate us because why? It hated him first. And we see that hatred. We see hatred transpire for the first time. Between these two brothers. Well, Cain toward Abel. As an encouragement, it would be a good time to quote Tertullian who said, The blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. Which means great persecution gives birth to great revival. Of course, Genesis 4 doesn't signal revival it does signal something, though, about the will of God for the people of God, which is no matter what happens or how impossible the outlook may appear, none of it, none of it will ever frustrate the will of God. Things may seem hopeless or even feel like a burden too great to bear. But time and time again, the Bible teaches us that what seems like it will thwart God's plans is actually what he's going to use to bring his plans about. And we see that ultimate picture in the gospel where evil, sinful men killed the sinless son of God and God's response to that was, that's okay, because that's what I planned in order to forgive sins. God is sovereign. Somehow in the mystery of his governance, how he controls things, he, and it is a mystery, he is able to work all things together for his purpose. As John Flavel said, the providence of God is like Hebrew. It's best to be read backwards. And that would have been the case for Adam and Eve in Genesis 4 here. That they're going to face God's providence in real time. As while, while they were promised a redeemer from their lineage, their eldest son is going to take the life of their youngest son. And afterward, the eldest son's going to be exiled, at which point they don't have any sons left who can relieve humanity from its curse. Yet, while it looks hopeless, while the situation looks abandoned, God's promise still remains. Is he the one? Adam knew his wife. She conceived, gave birth to Cain. She said, I've had a male child with the Lord's help. 
She also gave birth to his brother Abel. If I put myself in Adam's shoes as a father, the father of Cain and Abel, I would have probably expected one of them to be the offspring who would come and reverse the curse or destroy the works of the serpent, the promise that was made in Genesis 3. Remember, Genesis 3.15, he will, you'll strike his heel, he will crush your head, right? There's a promise there, and Adam and Eve believed it. Eve even credits the birth of Cain to the Lord's doing here. I have had a male child with the Lord's help. So naturally, I expect there was some sort of conversation at dinner at one point between the couple where one of them said to the other one, hey, you think this is the one? Will he be the one that God told us about who's going to redeem us from what we lost in the garden? And there's real people with real conversations wondering, how will God fulfill his promise? Of course, that would have changed when the boys grew older and put their character on display, at least for Cain. We'll observe brothers in the moment. It's a good time to point out, though, uh, that faith in the Old Testament, it's not any different than faith in the New Testament. It's not any different from faith in the New Testament. Because the people of God in the Old Testament had faith in the Messiah just as we do. They didn't know his name would be Jesus or what his, his, you know, the extent of his messianic role would look like exactly, but the anticipation of a redeemer was there. It's here. A promise had been made. It just hadn't been fulfilled yet. And the promise begins in Genesis 3 and then continues to expand in Relevatory prophecies by God's prophets throughout the centuries. So the people that that we read about in the Old Testament, the people of God, they placed their trust in the son of Eve, the one that was coming. And and so the same is true for us. We, We just say the son of Mary, right? But his lineage, Jesus's lineage, goes back to being a son of Eve. That's why our Genesis series is entitled Creation, Culture, and Christ. Because the book of Genesis opens up with the story of humanity and the anticipation of the one who is going to come and redeem it. Now, as we move forward into Genesis 4, we see that Adam and Eve learned rather quickly that it's not going to be either of their sons who is the Redeemer. And here we have our first point of application. So we've got to do a little bit of biblical theology so we can get to some practical theology. Here we go. God wants your best. Verses 3 through 7. God says, if you, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? It's something we learn from Cain's offering that's very practical for us, which, which God is not pleased by a simple act of giving or by the act of giving. 
I would even go as far to say he isn't even just pleased with the amount that we give. So it's not the act of giving. It's not the amount of giving. Instead, what God is pleased with is the heart behind why we gave. Giving is a matter of the heart. I'm going to write out this Christmas hymn sermon illustration for a couple more weeks here. The Drummer Boy. Growing up, I really disliked that song, The Little Drummer Boy at Christmas. I have no idea why. It just seemed like a stupid song. And that wasn't tactful. Uh, sorry. Uh, so many years ago, someone turned me on to the rendition of Little Drummer Boy by Pentatonics, and it quickly became my jam. And for anyone who doesn't know who the Pentatonics are, they're a modern acapella group, acapella group, and they've redone many Christmas songs. They're phenomenal. One of those songs is the Little Drummer Boy. It's it's a wonderful rendition. But but what it did, it, it made me listen to the lyrics, which I didn't remember from, as a child. And the part that resonates with me the most is when the little boy, when he says, "I I have no gift for him," right? No gift that is fit for the king. Ah, I know. I'll play my drums for him. My very best for him. And the little boy plays. He plays his drums. And what happens next? The Lord smiles. He smiles. You see, it it didn't matter what the boy could give to the Lord. It didn't matter that all he had was, was, was a little drum set. He didn't have gold. He didn't have myrrh. He didn't, I mean, the boy's not even real. This is, just, this is just a song. All he had was drums. And it didn't matter. What mattered was the heart that he offered his gift to the king with. His heart was to do his best. I'm going to play my best. And the Lord accepted it in the song. And there's, a, there's another war taking place in our lives. It's, it's, not, it's not a war between us. It's, it's, not, it's not a war with culture. And I'm going to refrain from that anyway, because sometimes we're not being persecuted by true persecution, by evil or sin. Sometimes we're just in conflict with, a, with flesh and blood. That's not our battle, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. Maybe I should say that. I mean, there is a war with culture. There's a war for our children. We, well, that's another sermon. I want to talk about a war that is within us and a battle that each one of us faces, which is an eternal struggle with our sinful desires. 
And we as Christians are not immune to it. And as God's people, we may not relate to Cain's brutality, but we can identify at times with his reluctancy to give his best. As like Cain, I'm going to unpack what best means. Like Cain, we, we have no problem giving God a portion of our heart. We're just unwilling sometimes to give him the best portion of our heart. And it's not necessarily a reference to giving. Although giving is very relevant, not only to this passage, but also to what we treasure most. But I realize what, what, what you and I may hold near and dear, it may not be our finances. It might be we like to hold on to anger, and we don't want to give that up. We like to hold on to gossip. I don't want to give that up. We like to hold on to things looking at our computer that we shouldn't be looking at. And Lord, I'll give you anything. I just don't want to give you that. It can be anything. Secret sins, well-hidden idols. Each and every one of us is tempted to withhold something from God. Temptation is there. It wouldn't be just for us to condemn Cain's offering without first examining ourselves and taking the log out of our own eyes and just asking ourselves, examining our hearts individually. Don't answer this out loud, please. At least not this morning. What... Are you withholding from the Lord? Are you aware if you're withholding anything from the Lord? Are you completely aware that you're withholding from the Lord and and now it's face to face with the Lord saying it's time? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm I'm not asking about things that are inherently sinful. This is not a call to be legalistic and give up things just for the sake of looking or appearing to be more spiritual. It's a call to repent, to repent from whatever sin you have been unwilling to let go of. My job is, it's not to transform you into a better person. My my job is to proclaim the word of God so that the spirit of God may conform you into the image of God, who is Jesus. And there's grace, loved one. Goodness, there's, there's grace. The Lord who calls us to repent from the sins that we're withholding provides the grace to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of that unrighteousness. And he does it through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. And if we evaluate the heart of Cain, we, we can see that his lack of affection for God, it's what he's got, he's got a lack of affection for God, and it's due to his desire for something other than God. It goes, it's the same for each one and every one of us. We, we think we cannot be happy without whatever we're replacing God with. And then at the same time, we remain puzzled as to why 
I don't have any joy in the Lord. Why do I not delight in the Lord when I'm trying to hang on to all the things that he tells me to give up? We will never delight in God when we willfully choose to find joy in sin. Those those two just don't go together. Sin is what separates us from God. As long as we choose that over obedience, we will continue to feel further from Him. So the only way we'll ever stop that war raging within us between choosing sin and obeying God is when we stop trying to play both sides of the fence. We cannot be free from the agony of sin until we choose to make Christ Lord and put it to death. And Jesus said this. He says it. We cannot serve two masters, right? Either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and you're going to despise the other. Why do people walk away from Christ? Because he told them they have to die to their self and they didn't want to. God warns Cain, sin, sin wants to be your master, Cain. You must master it. It's going to master you. It's, it's amazing how the smallest amount of obedience has the ability to set us free. And yet, as we see with Cain here, the tiniest amount of disobedience has the capability to enslave us. Whatever minuscule amount of offering Cain desired to keep, whatever that was, whatever portion he didn't want to give, for whatever reason he didn't want to give it, it was able to enslave him to it. James tells us that. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Yeah, we got desires of the flesh, right? Sometimes my daughters say, well, you know, how do we know if it's Satan tempting us or someone tempting us? I say, well, you may never be tempted by Satan at all. You don't even need Satan to tempt you because your own flesh wants to sin. I remember my daughter who's about to turn 18 this week when she was a kid. I was on the phone with her, and she said, uh, she was a super hyper, more, more, than, more than a typical kid, which is extreme if you've ever been around one. And... I, I, I don't even know why I just said, man, have you like been drinking soda or eating candy? And she said, uh, I think she had eaten like a whole box of popsicles. And, and, I, and I says to her, you know you're not supposed to do that. And her response was, I know, Daddy, but I like it. is lured and enticed by his own desire. His own desire. Then desire, when it's fully conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Second point of application, consider the cost. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. 
The Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I do not know, Cain replied, am I my brother's guardian? And then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You're a restless wanderer on the earth. Verse 13, Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Consider the cost. God warned Cain, sin is knocking at the door. Doesn't seem like he listened to it. It seems like Cain tuned out the voice of the Lord. Maybe it's comparable to us shutting our Bibles and never reading them, tuning out the voice of the Lord. We don't want to know what the Lord expects of us. It would be too convicting. It would be too personal. And God is a personal God. He speaks to our heart. He speaks to our mind. We know that. Well, I don't want to hear his voice. I'm going to shut it off. Close my Bible. Well, Cain didn't have a Bible, at least not the full 66 books that we have, but he was in the process of becoming a character within it. From that moment that Cain tuned out God, he proceeded to just stew in his anger, which allows it, it allowed his jealousy and it says he was furious to just enslave him to it chained him to it. I just just think about the snowball effect that sin was able to produce in Cain's heart. And when, when, when Cain started off, it was just withholding his best portion, right? That's it. Quickly turned into to envy and hatred, and then finally resulted in a plot to kill his brother, which he fulfilled. There's no better time to quote Alistair Begg. I've heard him say this a million times. Sow a seed, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. That's what Cain did. You see, it's a lie to think that there's a such thing as small sins. There, there may be different degrees of sin, but there are none that are inconsequential. Every sin, no matter how insignificant it appears, appears, still falls short of the glory of God. And no matter how minuscule it may seem, the wages are still death. And if we make a habit of practicing little sins may eventually wind up wondering how in the world we ever ended up committing the greater. As we see with Cain, the cost, the cost. You've seen people just have complete life failures. Even, even in ministry, Christians are not <laughs> immune to life failures, to just complete moral blowouts. And, and they always, the say, it's the same thing every they, they say every time, I just don't know how I wound up here. I have no idea how I got, all got to this point. Well, I can tell you, 
It's the same for you, it's the same for me, same for all of us. You began with that little, small leak, and it was never plugged, and eventually that small leak turned into a blowout. And the cost, the cost is always greater than we can bear. At least that we think we can endure. We see that with Cain, and he literally says it, my punishment is too great to bear. Now, we need to make a distinction here between godly remorse and worldly remorse because the Bible does. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Cain's got regret. But look, Cain's regret... It doesn't lead him to ask for forgiveness, does it? He only asks for protection. He isn't concerned about what he did to his brother. He's only interested in whatever happens to him. It's been the the case the whole time. He's only concerned about himself. That's what worldly remorse is. It's only concerned about itself. Esau is the same way. Only <laughs> not repentant. It's not, it's not godly sorrow that leads them to the Lord. It's just sad they got caught and they have to face a consequence. But godly sorrow, on the other hand, it recognizes that it has sinned against God in heaven. Paul says that godly remorse chooses to die to that sin by repenting from it. Godly sorrow asks the Lord for forgiveness. And the Bible gives us a promise. It tells us something for those who do. The Bible says, for those who come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, He pardons. He pardons our sins, all of them, removes them from our account. It's grace. And how does He does it? Well, how does He does it? How does He? How does he do it? How does he remove our sins completely so that our account is blameless? He does it through the cross of Eve's offspring in Jesus. This is the one. I'm skipping to verse 25 and 26, the end of Genesis. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth, also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. When we get to verse 25, we, we learn that the death of Abel and the exile of Cain is not the end of the story. Adam and Eve had experienced that real time. Looking back towards God's providence, they can see, oh, Seth was planned this entire time. 
And neither of those first two sons is who the Lord had intended to fulfill his promise through. And so we see Adam and Eve learned. Eve started off with really bad theology in the Garden of Eden, and now she's really picking up the pace and learning more about God and understanding nothing can frustrate the will of God. Nothing. The entire book of Genesis teaches that. The entire Bible teaches that. And if you trust God and his will and his word, then you too will learn that nothing can ever frustrate the will of God, no matter how dire it looks. Eve realizes that in verse 25. God, Seth, it sounds like that. And he got appointed me, appointed me another offspring. Yeah, well, he's going to appoint an offspring for us as well. And he's going to do it through Seth. You see, the arrival of Seth meant that the Lord would be able to fulfill his promise. She gets it. Eve understands that. Seth is not the one who's going to destroy the serpent, but it is Seth's lineage that the Messiah will be born through. Luke 3, with a couple names out, just for time's sake. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, different Lamech, get to him in Genesis 5, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke writes to us and his readers of that time to confirm that this Jesus, the one that he's writing about in the Gospels, he is the seed of the woman who was promised who will destroy the works of the serpent and defeat the serpent, who will crush the head of the serpent. This is the one. But not with a sword. With a sacrifice. He's a Savior who sets us free from the curse and removes our transgressions, but not by ignoring our sins, because he died for them. Instead, by forgiving them. He offers forgiveness to all who come to him and ask. Not by works, but by grace. It's an odd conclusion, but I want to just say this. Understanding that Jesus is the focus here, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, specifically here, it's the answer to the question every single one of us has asked when we were children, and our children asked us after we read Genesis 4. If Adam and Eve were the first humans and the first couple, where'd all the other people come from? Who's Cain even afraid of? I have no idea the answer to that. But here's what I do know. The Bible is not concerned with us knowing the family tree of every human throughout human history. The Bible is interested interested in us knowing the family tree of the one who will redeem us from the curse by saving his people from their sins. In other words, the the reason the Bible doesn't tell us where all the other humans came from 
is because they aren't the main character of the story. The main character of this story, the main character of your story, is Jesus. We'll end there. Heavenly Father, and God, I pray that that everyone here individually would want to know the main character. And I don't just mean, I don't just mean as Savior and Lord. I mean in a, in a, in a personal, intimate relationship where someone would, were to come up to them and say, how is the Lord working in your life? They could give a response and say, here's what the Lord is doing in my life. The Lord is transforming me into a better husband. The Lord is transforming me into a more obedient child. The Lord is convicting me about this specific area of my life. The Lord is providing joy for me because even in this sorrow, I know that I can trust him. And he reminds me of that every single day I read his word. God, we want to know you. And that comes through Jesus. Help us to know who you are. Reveal yourself to us. Give us an affection that Abel had and Christ had that Cain does not have, Lord. We are useless to do this on our own, incapable of coming to you unless you draw us. Draw us through the Son, Lord. And God, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.